And if you have a Bible, will you please turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans chapter 16. Just a short reading this morning from verse 23. Romans 16, verse 23. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The verse, uh, last verse of that uh, reading forms what's called a doxology. Now, if you've not heard of the word, it comes from two Greek words, doxa meaning glory and logia meaning saying. And basically, a doxology is a portion of praise to God. Zach Hicks says, doxologies are as old as the scripture. They punctuate each of the five books of the Psalms. Actually, you can find doxologies right through the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament as well. Um, I love these doxologies that the Word of God brings to, to, to the Lord. And let me just read a few of my favorites to you if you bear with me. Uh, there are two in Timothy, I think, are great. 1 Timothy 1.17. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then 1 Timothy 6.15. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I love the one in Jude 2 verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Don't you feel like saying amen to that? And I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading doxologies without Revelation 5, verse 12 to 13. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I love those doxologies. One writer says, the book of Romans 
ends with a beautiful doxology, praising God for what he has done through his son Jesus Christ. It is the grand finale befitting the Lord God, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel by which we come to know them. It brings the book of Romans to an eloquent conclusion. It proclaims the majesty of the majestic truth that God purposed from all eternity to save the nations in Jesus Christ. When Paul was finishing the, uh, his dictation of the book of Romans, he did what he so often did. He took the pen himself and he finished those final words. Let's look at uh, what these verses that he penned say to us this morning. The first thing, verse 23, Now to him who is able to establish you. The Greek word, uh, you, you, you'll have been told this by many preachers, the Greek word for able is dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. What it's saying is that our God is a powerful God. He is a dynamic God. Some commentators literally render this as a God who is of power. Now Israel in their history lost sight of that. They forgot how great and awesome God is. It's lovely that Hannah, we didn't have time as I've been away on holiday this week, to... Um, to coordinate so much, but singing that song just before I preached was great, Hannah, um, that God is an awesome God. Isaiah, lost, uh, the, Isaiah brings Israel back to the reality that they'd lost sight of, that God is an awesome God. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 40, from verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand mucked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales, and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They're regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? We're going to come back to that reading a little later. Our God is a dynamic God. To whom can you compare God? He's a God of power, a God who is able. But then Paul says something that is wonderful and glorious. He says that that great, awesome power of God is directed towards us. He says, now, unto him who is able to establish you. 
This word establish is a, a, a familiar word to us in the English. It's sterex in the Greek, but it's steroid in English. And we're all familiar, I'm sure, with uh, that word. Um, it literally means to give the maximum amount of strength available. Well, I just uh, have to stand and try and take that in a bit sometimes. This awesome God directs his power to us and he makes available the maximum amount of strength and power that we need. God is saying, I am the source of your strength and your stability. In 1977, we went from a church near Newcastle upon Tyne to the Rhondda Valley. Now, the year before, 1976, was the year of the great drought. Some of you may remember that, and they were t particularly, because of the reservoir system, badly hit in the, uh, the, the, the uh, south of Wales. And uh, when we were there, I remember uh, some people in a group saying to me, good job you weren't here last year. The reservoirs were nearly empty. Um, water was in short supply. In the Brecon Beacons, they said that um, it was so difficult that some were going 17 hours a day without water to their homes, reliant upon standpipes in the street, they told me, for their water. They said, good job you weren't here last year. But we had a, an old couple in the church called uh, David and Peggy Smith. Now, if your name is David in the Rhonda, you're called Di. And so Di spoke up, puffed his chest out and said, well, we had water in plenty, all we needed, all summer long. He said, you see, we're not on Maine's water. We have a spring that flows down the mountain and supplies our house and some others in our street and he said that never ran dry. We had plentiful supply of water all through the summer. When he said that, the words of Jeremiah 17, 7 come to mind. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in the year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. Whatever situation you might be going through, God is the source of your strength and supply. And you can be like that tree planted by the stream. He goes on then to say, in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past but now revealed. Paul begins Romans by talking about the gospel and ends talking about the gospel. In Romans 1.16 he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, 
to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. It's through the power of the gospel that the blind eyes of men and women are opened, that our dead hearts are quickened, that new life flows into us. We become new creations in Jesus Christ. That's why the word gospel means good news. It is good news. When I was a young man, the gospel was at the forefront of church activity. We had a gospel service every Sunday night, as well as a morning communion service. It was unusual for the, to go a week without somebody giving their life to Christ at the gospel service. But then society slowly changed. People no longer came out twice on a Sunday. With TV, modern technology, and all the rest, invites to missions lost their appeal. We became the casual society. But church in general, and, I, and I'm not talking about our church specifically, but all churches really, church, the church of Jesus in general struggled to adapt to the changes in society. Some were very innovative. I think one of the most wonderful ways of winning people to Christ that came out during that time of change was the Alpha Course. Probably been responsible for tens if not hundreds of thousands of people throughout the world coming to Christ. They thought outside the box. They adapted. They found another way to reach people with the gospel. And there are other um, initiatives too. But so often, as I see it, instead of doing that, a lot of churches shifted their focus away from the gospel to activities that were more inward-looking. And that's the danger, isn't it? I'm so glad we have a pastor here that has a heart for evangelism. For the gospel, the Bible says, is still the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. But note, Paul says it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I proclaim about Jesus Christ. One writer says, the major theme of Romans, like the major theme of all scripture, is Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus Christ was Paul's supreme life commitment. In his first letter, to the church at Corinth, he said, We preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why is the message so powerful? Because it's a message about Jesus Christ and his cross. Through the cross Jesus defeated the three great enemies of mankind. Sin, death, and the devil. When I was at Bible college, um, we had a, a, a guy there in the year above us. A big, tall guy, muscle man. And uh, his biceps bulged in his shirt. And... Um, he was, a, he was out and out for God. 
One summer, I saw him wearing, because in those days for lectures and everything, you had to wear a tie and smartly dressed, but it, he was in the grounds and in the summer and he had the short sleeve t-shirt on. And I couldn't help noticing that on his, the tops of both arms he had some terrible scars. So I, I said to him, I, I said, how did you get those scars, if you don't mind me asking. In those days, I wasn't very tactful, you know, I'd just go straight in. And uh, he said, well, David, he says like this. Before I became a Christian, I was into a lot of anti-Christian stuff. I was into the occult and so on, he said. And I had on both shoulder, uh, arm, upper arms demonic tattoos. He said, then I went into a church one night, heard the gospel, and got wonderfully saved. Totally changed. Jesus changed my life, he said, but those tattoos really bothered me. He said, I didn't want to carry in my body anything that dishonored my Savior. And he said, in my stupid desperation one day, I took an electric sander and took them off. Now, I don't recommend that as a solution to a problem like that. Um, I can think of at least two more sensible solutions to that. But isn't it wonderful how the gospel can so change someone that they're willing to suffer pain and agony rather than dishonor their Lord? They serve and love. I, I admired that young man. I really did. We used to sing a hymn. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since Jesus came in to my heart. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. For when we lift up Jesus and his cross, lives are changed. For as I said, the gospel is the power of God. Verse 26 says that... Uh, God has revealed a mystery hidden for long ages past. Now, he's not talking about an Agatha Christie novel or a Sherlock's home investigation. Here, the word mystery literally means something formerly hidden but now revealed to everyone. There's a nice uh, verse in Colossians 1.26 that gives us a little bit more on that. It says this, This mystery has been kept in the dark for a long time, but now it's out in the open. God wants everyone, not just Jews, to know this rich and glorious secret inside out. In Hebrews 1 verse 1, he begins uh, his epistle by saying, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. The full revelation of God's plan of salvation came through Jesus Christ. One writer put it this way, with the coming of Jesus, something unique happened. Eternity invaded time. God emerged on earth. His coming was the event which all history was working up to, and the event from which all subsequent history flows. After the coming of Christ, the world could never be the same again. It was a central fact of history, so that men date time in terms of before and after Christ's birth. 
It is as if with his coming the world began all over again. The mystery of the gospel news has now been revealed through the life, death, resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. The door of heaven now stands wide open for those who will by faith receive the Lord of Lords and King of Kings by becoming obedient to him. Paul, after waxing eloquent in his thrill about the gospel, he then says three things about God. He says he is the eternal God. The Greek word Ionius, as you probably have heard said, is rendered everlasting and eternal. It means forever and ever. Um, Maybe he's referring back to verse 25 where he talks about aeons or ages past. We read earlier from Isaiah chapter 40 where God had to, through the prophet Isaiah, reveal to Israel again what an awesome, great and powerful God he is. The prophecy was addressed to the exiled Jews in Babylon who thought God had forsaken and forgotten them. In verse 27 of that chapter, the Jews were saying, why do you complain? God says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? That's what they were saying. My way is hidden from the Lord. God doesn't know where I am. God doesn't care. God's forsaken us. I don't know if you've ever felt like that in your life. They'd been in captivity nearly 70 years. Their cries to God seemed to have gone unanswered. I've been in situations, I have to confess, where I've prayed hard about something and it never seems to change or a need I've brought to the Lord repeatedly remains unmet. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations like that. We used to sing a song in a choir I led many years ago. Has God forgotten me? Have I prayed in vain? Sometimes we feel like that. But Isaiah reminded these Israelites that God hasn't changed. God hasn't forgotten. God is the awesome God who knows exactly where we are. He's the eternal God. And as well as his nature, his wonderful compassion and love don't change either. Just listen to these scriptures. Isaiah 54 verse 8. With everlasting kindness I have had compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Everlasting kindness. Jeremiah 31 3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. uh, Psalm 100 verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Psalm 103, verse 17. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. Hebrews 13, 20 tells us that even the eternal covenant is eternal. He says, now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd, 
of the sheep. Our eternal loving God loves us with an everlasting love. Then verse 27 he says, To the only wise God. Mark Buchanan says, Paul says that God alone is wise. If you compare the sum of wisdom of anyone, anything, other, any other so-called God or guru or philosopher, and compare it to God and his wisdom, you find they're all nincompoops. God alone is the only one we can actually say is wise. In comparison to God, everything else looks like sheer and utter bumbling folly. For me, one of the greatest understatements in the Bible is in Isaiah 55, where Isaiah quotes God, saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is the only wise God. When we look at God's wisdom in creation, we're humbled by it. When we look at the depth and majesty of the word of God and the wisdom in it, we're amazed. But God's wisdom is not some detached characteristic of his nature. The Apostle Paul tells us that our loving Heavenly Father in his love and grace uses his wisdom in his providential care of our lives. Romans 8 verse 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He is using that wisdom, knowing what's best for you and for me, and guiding and working everything for our good. One commentary put it like this. No one but the only wise God is worthy of our trust. If God were merely all-powerful, we would have more reason to be afraid of him than to put our confidence in him. But God is wise as well as powerful. And then he ends by, Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's difficult to define God's glory, but some have had a go at it. One definition says, glory is the fullness of God. When God gives his glory, he gives himself. And of course, Exodus 33 kind of backs that up. When Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. What God did was showed himself. It says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Moses didn't see anything but God himself or something, not the fullness, but something of God himself. So maybe that is the key to the glory of God. But my favorite quote about giving God the glory is this one, and I'm just about done. To glorify God is to extol his attributes, to praise his works, to trust his name, and obey his word. 
He is holy, faithful, merciful, gracious, loving, majestic, sovereign, powerful, and omniscient. And that's just for starters. His works are wonderful, wise, marvelous, and fearfully complex. His word is perfect, trustworthy, right, radiant, pure, firm, and precious. His salvation is astonishing, timely, and near. No matter how loudly or widely we proclaim the glory of God, he is worthy of more. In her refrain, of her 1875 hymn, Fanny Crosby wrote, To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life an atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus' his Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Think of those last words. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus' his Son and give him the glory. Great things he has done. He died on a cross for our sin, that we might be forgiven, reconciled to God, receive the gift of life eternal, be made new in Christ. Will you come? Do you need to come to the Father through Jesus, his Son? Why not invite him, if you do, into your life right now? Just say, Lord Jesus Christ, come into my heart today. Be Lord of my life. Forgive all my sins and give me the gift of life eternal and I will follow you and serve you from this day forward. A simple prayer changes lives. We open the door of our hearts to Christ and he comes in. Father God, I just pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts and help us to truly give you the glory for you have done great things. Lord, things we are unworthy of, but your grace and your love has abounded toward us. Help our lives to shine forth with love for you and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.